0: And the reading is from Matthew, chapter 5, and I'll read verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven this is the word of god please rise if you're able and let's respond with the doxology It's fairly common to hear when people volunteer that they find that experience very meaningful and satisfying. And that's kind of interesting because volunteering usually doesn't have the kind of incentives that normally drive us in terms of what will be meaningful for us, what will be satisfying, how do I have a good life? And and you hear this across the board from people who tutor kids and people who visit the elderly and people who distribute meals and those who try to be a friend uh, to people who are lonely or whatever the various ways, certainly um, Christians in our city is one example, but lots of people uh, devote their time and energy and by the incentives, meaning, normally we say, if we pay you, um, then it's worth keep doing, keeping doing the hard thing, because you're being compensated, you're gaining personally. Or if you can do this in a way that will um, build up your resume in some way. And yes, when it comes to volunteering, there are certainly personal benefits. You get bragging rights, or there may be other incentives that, that are there. Sometimes they're selfish. Sometimes they're not selfish, but they uh, benefit the self. Look, we're complex human beings. We will never do anything if we're waiting to be perfect. But there are some that find there is a dynamic that when you go out and you give yourself away, even if it's scary, even if it's hard, there's something meaningful and satisfying in it. And I think one reason is it taps into who we are as human beings. And so uh, God has wired us to go into the world and to be active and to carry certain characteristics. And so one of those characteristics, for example, is generosity the idea that we would give to others whether or not we would gain anything in return. When you actually do that, even if the situation's hard, even if you're not successful, there's often something energizing in that experience. So when you give yourself away with no expectation of personal gain, you're surprisingly set free from the negative sides of always seeking personal gain. And, and so there's something about going into the world as a non-selfish person that's surprisingly freeing and energizing. And look, we have to be practical. It's not selfish to be concerned for your own needs, uh, things like that. But, but we tend to often get so bogged down with that that we feel like we have nothing left to give, and so we don't give, and therefore we don't thrive. Um, we're in a short sermon series looking at the five fundamental practices that we at Emmanuel identify. And we call them F-W-P-S-M, F-W-P-S-M fellowship, the word, prayer, sacraments, and mission. Today we're talking about mission, the last category. Now for those of you who have been paying attention, we did not follow that order of FWPSM. And so maybe that will demonstrate that Presbyterians are not as uh, strict and confined. I'll look at the freedom we have, that we could talk about Phwepsum, but we didn't start with fellowship, we started from, with the word. We went with the word, then fellowship, then the sacraments, prayer, mission. This is innovation. Now, some of you are becoming uncomfortable. Wait a second. (laughs) Did he just pick an order randomly as if the universe was random? And I wanna encourage you that we actually followed the order of Acts 2. So we didn't follow Phlepsum, but we followed the order of, they were devoted, the disciples, to the apostles' teaching, that's the word, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the sacraments, and the prayers. But wherever you stand on that divisive issue, we are ending together on mission. Uh, the last thing that says uh, God sends us out into the world. And so um, God calls us to himself. There's so much that God does that is individualistic and personal. And we need each of us to sit before God and work that out in our own lives. But God calls us into fellowship. So Christianity is not individualistic. And God calls us as a gathered people but also as a scattered people during the week to go into the world for the good of the world. There's a reason Jesus did not take us out of the world, but brings grace into our lives and leaves us here for a season. And the temptation in spirituality could be to be so overwhelmingly concerned for what I'm receiving, that we miss that going and acting and doing and giving is an important component of of how we grow, how we mature. And so today we're gonna talk about mission, the idea that God has left us in the world with purposes to serve the world in particular ways. And so today I wanna talk about two particular things, engaging the world and revealing God. And then the series will end in the next two weeks. Next week, we'll talk about engaging the world through inviting people to faith and then the following week, engaging the world through caring for uh, the hurting, the needs, the poor, those things, Uh, the specific kinds of mission that churches often are particularly engaged with. So uh, I want to begin by talking about engaging the world, and then we'll talk about revealing God. So in terms of engaging the world, uh, in our scripture reading, Jesus uh, first in verse 13 says to, to those who are gathered, this crowd, so this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is now teaching people who are interested in following him, and he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. And so this image, this metaphor of salt, largely plays a function to say that you are to be in the world, but in a distinct way. Uh, He seems to be highlighting the distinctiveness Now, if you keep salt in your kitchen in water, it won't remain distinct, it will uh, dissolve, and and therefore it won't be useful for most cooking needs. But on the other hand, if you keep your salt um, in an airtight container so it doesn't, uh, moisture doesn't get into it, whatever the case is, but you want it to remain where it is and not use it in your cooking, that would be odd. This metaphor of salt is helpful because um, The two big and obvious temptations for followers of Jesus are accommodation, losing our distinctiveness, we're we're so in and engaged with the world that that the only way we're distinct is with certain vocabulary or certain practices, or uh, attempting to remain so distinct for any number of reasons, protection is one of them, we don't want to be influenced by the world, that we're we're so distinct that we're actually disengaged. So we would be like the salt shaker that sits safely in the cabinet so we could be comforted that it's there, but it's not making the food taste better. Um, Those two poles are easy to define and identify. The hard thing is to live in between them, to sort of be engaged with the world so that you're learning from the world, um, but also that the world is learning from us. And what we're learning is not corrupting us, but growing us and what we're doing is not causing harm but actually bringing good into the world. That's hard. And that's an area where Christians are in disagreement. Uh, Some of us really want to highlight the safety, the protection, some of us really want to highlight the opportunities to have influence. And those are subtle areas where we make each other uncomfortable, where we disagree in certain Christian sects, um, even within Presbyterianism. Some Presbyterians are more engaged, some Presbyterians are less, and certainly in a church like ours, we'll have people that have different inclinations. Um, there's always going to be the tendency to protect yourself, to be safe and to be willing to not be as effective in engaging the world, and so more extreme examples of kind of a, a, the word fundamentalist today evokes in most people's minds, sort of, sort of angry militant people that are distinct from society, uh, but therefore not respected, not having influence, and that certainly. One of the dangers, if you're just caught up in, with anger and hostility and you, you withdraw and you think that by engaging, you're just gonna yell over a distance, um, that certainly doesn't uh, fulfill this vision of SALT being in and among. Um, but as an example of a group that that in some ways could be described as fundamentalist in that they are so radically different, but they have a different kind of reputation. Usually when we think of of fundamentalists, we think of angry, um, harsh, confrontative people. But take the Amish, for example. They are so distinct from the world that there are no articles online about how to protect their teenagers from social media because they don't go online, they don't use mobile phones, uh, they don't even have cars. And so here's a group that is so distinct to say we are not gonna be engaged with the innovations of the world that we're just gonna farm like they did 150 years ago. Um, And what's interesting is is they wind up being quite respected but in a way that I think when people think of the Amish, they don't think of them as a religious group or they're aware that they're a religious group. They just think, oh, these are the people who make the pies at the farmer's market. And and there's no sort of sense that, that they as a community are actively engaging, although it's funny, you know, they're so disconnected that one of the ways that I assume that they try to engage because they're committed to these principles like radical honesty. I imagine if you're doing business, if you're in, in farm work and you're doing business with them, seeing their kindness, their humility, their generosity, their truth, should have a, an effect on the people they're connected to. It's just that they wind up disconnected from most of the world. And so their influence winds up being smaller. It's also interesting. I think one of the ways that they try to be missional is through tourism. They're quirky enough; people want to sort of go out and, and um, you know, go into Pennsylvania and ask them, "Wait a second, you're Dutch, but you're from Germany. How does all that work?" And so, uh, they welcome you in. So, for example, some years ago, our family went, and you know, they try to woo you with these very unhealthy buffets and other components of their life, but they have this, this model of the tabernacle that they, they built that was of interest to me, the, the tabernacle from the Old Testament. And we went and, and they want to make sure they're going to have a tour explaining it. And we got a revival sermon that uh, I only think this is what Charles Wesley and John Whitfield sounded, this, uh, this woman who was um, clearly trying to have that captive audience understood understand what that sacrifice meant. And it was quite moving. And I thought they're doing what they can. They're, they've got people coming and they're using that opportunity. So there they are in their own way, being very distinct, still trying to be missional. They're very good at not being influenced. As a New York City church, we might say they're having less of an influence in our context. And so what does it mean to, to be in the world, but not of the world? That's what this image of, of salt, Gives us So on the one hand, we remain distinct. Verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, Jesus says it's no longer good for anything. So on the one hand, if the salt is not going into the food, it's not fulfilling its, its work. But on the other hand, uh, there are liberal versions of churches that are so in tune with what's happening that they give up. Uh, the historic faith. There are more relevant kind of churches as happens with American evangelicalism that we want to be so in the culture uh, that again, certain, certain fundamentals are given up and therefore uh, the church is no longer good for anything other than putting our, sometimes, our hypocrisy on display. Our failings shine more brightly. So that balance of how do you remain distinct but how do you remain engaged uh, is really hard. It has to be a work of the spirit, it has to be a work of faithfulness, it has to be a work of constantly reevaluating how are things changing, how do we engage. Uh, but, but here are two, uh, two things that you could draw out by the nature of salt that are useful maybe for capturing our imagination. Salt has various uses, so for example, there's a cleansing component to salt, which I think may have relevance, I'm not gonna talk about that today. Um, But one thing salt does is it does preserve. So Jesus is speaking at a time when there's no refrigeration. And so salting meat, just like, you you know, now you see sometimes, you know, uh, Italians having salami hanging where you have this meat that then could be preserved for the winter, Um, uh, various ways of, of preserving without refrigeration. There's a sense in which once an animal no longer has life in itself, it will begin to decay. And so if you own the animal and can't eat it all at once, salt is useful in in, in keeping the, de- the decay from happening. So Jesus calling us to be salt in the world in some ways is saying the presence of people who will live as God calls them to live will work again the forces of de- against the forces of decay. That society will often lean towards injustice and decline and harm. And having a people that are called to resist that and to remain faithful is important. And therefore you need to remain distinct if if you, um, uh, if you assimilate, uh, you may not be able to hold the fort on, on slowing down harmful things that are happening. But the other other aspect of salt that that certainly, in view of what Jesus is saying, is taste, uh, because that's what he says: if if salt has lost its taste, it's no longer good for anything. And so, one of the things about salt is it tastes good. And so, there's a sense in which God has also left to people in the world who, through uh, this different way of life are meant to to bring out the goodness of the world in which we live, which then puts us in the trajectory from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1, God creates all things good, and then He creates humanity in His image. It says, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. In our fallen, broken world, because of our sinful nature, we think of dominion as domination. Let's go and take for ourselves as opposed to others. But division is a rule. Um, uh, be kings on this earth like God is a king. God who made all things good is now sending you into the world to make all things good. And so use your wisdom, your time, your energies, and your efforts for the good of the world to a certain degree. Uh, that was Genesis 1, but then early on in the Bible it goes astray. And so there's something about the call to follow Jesus which is meant to to, to take the goodness of God and bring its presence into the, into the world. And so Uh, with salt. Salt tastes good on its own. I'm a fan of the everything bagel. I don't get the salt bagel. The salt is probably the flavor I like most in the everything bagel. You get one of those big crystals, and I just really like the saltiness. But when it's all salt, it's a little bit too much. (laughs) So when it's mixed in there, um, I find that when I crunch on the salt, I like the taste of the salt. But usually we don't leave the salt so distinctly there. We mix it in. And you know, as we think about these different category flavors of sour and bitterness, but there's salt and sweet, we think of them as different. The interesting thing is salt is in so many recipes where it calls for sweetness. Now, there's a trend these days to leave the big salt crystals on the top of a cookie because that distinctly salty flavor actually is pleasant with the sweetness. But even as an old school cookie recipe has salt in it. There's something about salt that, even if you're not tasting the saltiness, is bringing out the flavor. And so there's a trend of this fifth taste uh, dynamic, umami. Uh, some say this is different than the other four. And it's a Japanese guy who, who seems to have discovered this uh, ubiquitously uh, p- pleasing sensation that you get that's not salt or sweet. Um, but the dynamics of it, if you read about MSG, <laughs> Is there something something fundamentally salty that brings out the flavor of everything? And so Jesus saying you're the salt of the earth. On the one hand, there are times when you need to resist the decline, but there are also times that you are to participate in what is good and make it better, that the presence of those who are upright and faithful brings out the best of what's happening elsewhere. And so uh, there is this sense in which being engaged in culture uh, uh, the presence of those who love Jesus, who follow him, who are faithful, is good for the world. Now, uh, where I thought I would apply this was in regards to being creative. Um, but as I've been trying to make sense since Friday on the, uh, the Supreme uh, Court reversal of Roe versus Wade, I don't have anything deep or complex to, um, to offer you as a way forward. But one of the the first things that stood out is in, in, in the responses, this, the, the predictable polarized um, uh, response. And that's how we respond to everything, every social issue, but it's intensified in the last few years. So this is one of those that, that we're all invited to pick a side and we're presented with two. And there is something about a call to remain distinct at a time like this, which is to say, You know, the pressure is there to say, we are presenting a very specific side, and if you're upright, the the appeal to our moral instinct is you need to stand with us. And we know that the way the algorithm works, we know that the way the news media works is it will give the microphone most frequently and most quickly to the loudest, to the most extreme views. And therefore, you will be presented with options. Do you care about the unborn or do you care about women? Which is it? Are you concerned about um, children before they are born, or are you children, uh, concerned with human beings after they have been born? And in the confusion, we don't want to be immoral and on the wrong side, and so we just pick one of those political sides. And, and, and I think what we need to be recognizing is there's always been something distinct about Jesus, that whenever, he got, whenever somebody tried to pull him into their agenda, I still don't know how he did it, but but he didn't fall for it, and he remained distinct, and on the other side of it, he's the only one that we can say was without sin. And I don't know in the upcoming months what particular things would be right and faithful for us to do in terms of what, how we vote or what, uh, what stances we take or who we support. I'm not saying that it's all confusing or that there aren't some obvious ways or, and I'm not saying that sometimes one social view is not the most right one, and we need to wholeheartedly, I'm not saying that we don't sometimes just need to fully get in with a certain political group. What I want to do is exercise the kind of caution to say that right now people are our natural instincts of fear, anger, boasting, pride, whatever it is, is going to be the first thing that captures our hearts, which means we will be drawn into participating in ways that are are not leading to the establishment of justice. I think it's worth our prayerfully saying, Lord, um, uh, help us to remain salty. Help us to remain sufficiently distinct that we're saying something different, um, but not in such a way that nobody's listening or that we're not listening. I I wish I had something more specific to tell us to do, but I think our assembling uh, to worship, our ongoing seeking of having the mind of Christ is essential at a time when people are saying, come and listen to me, take on my mind. Uh, I think to the degree that we know Christ and understand in him and in his ways, there's a way through this that will be costly, it will be confusing, um, but it's essential at this time that we remain salty, distinct, but somehow engaged. As I continue to reflect on this, I'll try to share my reflections, but there are brighter minds than myself, and so look not for the loudest, <laughs> but look for the the wise, the faithful, the humble, the godly, they are out there. They're just not on the first three pages of your Google search. And so as we try to think about um, faithfully engaging uh, this kind of issue and other issues like it, um, let's double down on, on trying to be like Jesus with the full counsel of the word, with the full spectrum of attributes of being courageous, truthful, compassionate, filled with love for God, for his people, but also for his enemies. Those are the kinds of things that we need right now that no one group is currently holding all together. And as a church, we should try very much to hold together as much of what Jesus presents to us as possible. So we are called to engage the world, but we're called to reveal God. And that's what I'm hinting at here, that there there needs to be something about what we're doing where the love of God is sufficiently in us that even if we're wrong in certain positions, Uh, Something about the way we're doing things signals to others that that it's good that we're here. Our task is to be engaged with the world as salt is to go into the food, to preserve it and to to bring out the flavor. But the second image here in verse 14, he says not only you are salt, but he gives us another image. You are the light of the world. Uh, And the image of light has some obvious implications. Uh, If you... Have ever had uh, young kids in your home, and in the middle of the night, without turning the lights on and going to the bathroom without shoes or slipper, you step on the pile of Legos. You know that having a light would have been helpful to avoid that very difficult situation. So, just a little bit of light makes a huge difference in navigating things. Jesus speaks about uh, a people that are meant to be light in the world. It's something desperately needed uh, because we're a very confused people. And in that confusion, we're uh, causing pain and harm. And there's meant to be an invitation of a way out of it. That's what Jesus has meant to, to lead us towards life, towards goodness. So in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And then in verse 16, he says, so let your light shine. And the question maybe to grapple with this week is, do you have light in you? And what is that light? So Jesus is, is saying, he's gathering people for his teaching, let your light shine. Well, What, what is it that energizes, you know, light is a form of energy. What, what is the energy in you? What motivates you? What sustains you? What do you bring to the world? Um, Jesus elsewhere in John's gospel claims, I am the light of the world. And therefore, there's something here that that is clearly connected with when Jesus says, you are the light, it's to the degree that you are my followers, you are like me. You are distinct from the world in the way that I am, but in the world to engage it for its good. Uh, In the next chapter of Matthew, there's a saying that's kind of confusing. In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light but if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Kind of hard to unpack that imagery and it's worth doing some study for the original context of what was assumed about eyes and things like that, but at least one thing that he seems to be saying uh, is that there's an impact on what you're looking at or looking to. What we're taking in um, then is what fills our lives. And and so this question of what what is your light, what is your energy, what is your life? Jesus is saying is if you look to me, um, life is going to be coming into you, and that light is then meant to shine back out from you. As we think about what the light in us naturally is, some of us are so uh, looking to certain things that we think are are meaningful and wonderful, and we the more we actively pursue them, the more we wither, the more we burn out, um, the less we reflect greatness, and the more uh, that we... we um, find ourselves going after whatever it is that the world presents to us is of greatest value uh, and that it, it actually is filling our lives with darkness. And we find that actually there's no energy in us to do the ordinary things, to just be kind to people. But Jesus is saying there's a light that's meant to be in you And it's interesting, uh, another place where in John, where he says, I am the light of the world, in John 12, he also says, when the son of man is lifted up, referring, that's how he referred to himself, he will draw all people to himself. And we know that he was talking about going to the cross and the imagery there of being lifted up ties with a a number of biblical images. But the gospels all record that when Jesus was crucified, that when he was lifted up in that way, condemned, um, unjustly sentenced to death, that in the middle of the day, around noon, darkness came upon the earth. That doesn't normally happen. And and it becomes this picture of all that's wrong in the world, that Jesus comes into the world and this is what we did. We misunderstood him and we rejected him and we accused him and we condemned him. And now we're taking life from the one who says he would come and give us life. The darkness coming on that moment actually uh, speaks of the darkness of the world, that that's what we do. Um, and there's a, t- a sense in which in the darkness, um, can you see God if God is the light of the world? That's Genesis 1. You know, it's interesting. There's this thing about the, the, the sun being created later on, and people think, well, where was there light before the sun? And the book of Revelation talks about God being the light. There's this sense in which there's something about God that, that emits life and radiance and beauty and energy. But in the world, we experience darkness. And so in the darkness, we don't see light. Jesus went into one of those situations that most of us in that situation would say, God, where are you? Darkness, confusion. And you go back to the creation story and, and there are these signs of the sun and the moon, signs in the heavens. And what they may not have known in the first century that we know with, with uh, greater knowledge now is that, that, that they're not two distinct lights, but the moon actually doesn't emit light, it has a reflective surface. And so if the sun is behind the, uh, the opposite, if the sun is on the opposite side of the globe that we're standing on in the middle of the night and so we don't have the light of the sun, we're still seeing the light of the sun when we see the moon. And so Jesus goes to the cross and darkness comes where he cries out about forsakenness before God. Where is God in this scene? And Christians have come to learn that in that dark moment where it seems that there was no light, uh, the light is the one who is on the cross. And what light is shining in him, it's still the reflection of the reality of God. That in our hostility, in our darkness, Jesus entering into that has enough light that God is still present in the darkness. And the Christian life is a call to follow Him to come more into the light. And it's so interesting because what we want is the fullness of life. You know, now that summer is here, maybe, you, maybe some of you are loving these long days and dreaming to, going to a sunny beach, places like that. Um, and yet, when you're in darkness, when you, when you come out of that movie in the middle of the day and your eyes are adjusting, um, having been in a dark room, there's something about living in this world that the invitation to come to God is painful. Look at God in all of his greatness. Don't you want God? And and the second you think of looking to God, it hurts enough that you, you think I'd rather just stay here. And the mission of God is to send Jesus in to stubborn people who are lost in the darkness and to show us just enough light, to show us just enough of his goodness and his holiness and his glory and his mercy that in the darkness, if we see Christ, we know that then we're oriented. We could follow him and then the light will rise and we'll be ready for it. And we uh, enter in through following Jesus, uh, this new life. The missional nature of God is he sends Jesus into the darkness is important for all of us because human beings struggle with the darkness of this world. And it's within us and it's outside of us. And the invitation to follow God comes to all and says, don't stay there. It may seem painful, but it's not. Look to Jesus. Uh, he will truly show you the true nature of God in a way that won't be painful, but will be restorative, will, will lead you. And he will bring you, he will usher you in to the profound and overwhelming glorious presence of God. And so you will be prepared for that. And so then Jesus says, as he prepares his disciples uh, before his crucifixion in John, as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And so that, that marvel that the Son was sent into the world so that we would have life, we're told receive that life, and then looking to God, stay in the world so long as God has given you days. And there will be times where you will be that salty person bringing out the flavor of all good things. There will be times where you're gonna sit in the darkness and say, oh God, where are you? But to the degree that you are looking to Christ, you are there to help others who may be asking some version of the same question but have nowhere to go. And so that's not an explanation for why God allows his own people to suffer, or it doesn't tell us what to do. But it tells us that as we look to God, when we remain here in the presence of God, seeking the likeness of God, uh, then somehow we are light. In the world, our lives actually actually have purpose and meaning even if it doesn't with, align with our stated goals or desires. There's something to say that no one who answers the call to follow Jesus has a meaningless life. No one is useless in the kingdom. And so, so the call to look to God because at the end of the day, what is the light in you? We're, we're kind of like the moon. There's no energy source in us. Uh, God is the author of life. Um, the important thing is not, first and foremost, the light that comes out of you, but, but whether or not there's light going into you. And what we're told is when we look to Jesus, who God has sent, when we see the light of God and the glory on the face of Jesus Christ, that starts to shine light into our lives so that we don't need to do anything. There's a, the reflective imagery, imaging of God properties in us that when we look to God with uh, worship... That something of His light is meant to then start to come out of us. And something that I say occasionally, one of the most fundamental things that we need to get clear is that God is good. We're always tempted to not believe that. We need to believe that God is good. One of the important practical outworkings of that is that puts us in tune with true goodness. That if if we believe God is good and see His goodness then that goodness starts to be reflected in our lives, which gets us out of these weird arguments we have about are good works important for Christians? Well, we don't earn anything. We don't earn God's favor. And then we ask the question, why be good? (laughs) Well, because goodness has its own reward. So, So look at God and all of his goodness and build that life so that you go back into the world seeking to live in those habits and patterns. And then it's the goodness of God that shines. And so with that illustration of the the sun and the moon, we are like those reflective surfaces that if God shines his light into our lives, it's for our own joy, it's for our own benefit. But so long as he leaves us here, it's to shine God's light in the world, which is why Jesus says, when you let your light shine before others, they see your good works. So you're really doing things. You have a meaningful life. You have to make choices. They see your good works and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And it's that distinction, that most of us, our good works are to try to, bring, to be seen so it would bring, bring glory to us, and it's odd how dissatisfying that is. But when we are in tune with the goodness of God and just seek to be faithful to that, people see our own lives, but they don't say how wonderful Scott Strickman is, <laughs> but they say how wonderful that God that Scott Strickman believes in is, and there's something surprisingly energizing about that. And so. Um, When Jesus is speaking to this crowd, when he says, you are the salt, you are the light, he's speaking plural. So it's true for you as an individual. You need to grapple with this. But he's talking about a community. He says, you, my followers are the salt of the earth. You, my followers are the light of the world. So in verse 14, he says, you're a city set on a hill. Now, if you ever find yourself driving to New York at night from a distance, especially if you've been away for a while. Now this is particularly useful for those of you who love living in New York which is not all of you. I grew up here, so I associate with New York being home. You know, from a distance, there are these tall buildings, but a tall building can't be seen at night. But in those buildings, there are distinct departments or distinct offices. And when everyone has their lights on, you wind up seeing the buildings. The the light within shines, and so one office had its light on, but no other. You might see that point of light, but you wouldn't see the building. But New York has so many people And there's so much light that from miles away, you can see the whole skyline. And if you're coming into the city as somebody looking to come home, then long before you're there, you're encouraged. Uh, But those tourists who have seen New York in the movies uh, get excited as they recognize the distinctive of the city as they get close to it. Each of us is called to be a grain of salt, a point of light. But we're called to be a people that together uh, shine so that, so that the salt is saltier, the light is brighter, and what's seen then is not necessarily what any one of us is doing, but, but what us faithful to Christ are doing, that then what they see is the, the broader structure, the reality of God in the world. Um, and so I want to encourage you um, to allow your good works, that's verse 16, um, devote yourself missionally to doing good. You will not earn favor from God. You will not strike the right balance of getting forgiveness from Him. If you meditate on the goodness of God and seek to consistently be that, then your actions will be salt, will be light. So people should see your good works. But this concept here of uh, verse 16, they'll give glory to your Father, uh, that familial likeness, it's really the likeness of God our Father that we are to grow in. And as we bear that family likeness, when people see us, they're meant to say something to the effect of, in that, in that greatness, you look something like your father. And therefore, our identity as God's children, knowing God as good, helps us to remain in the world as those who demonstrate his goodness. You know, it's interesting. I, I mentioned earlier that the Amish, um, by their explicit strategies, are not terribly effective in engaging the whole world. But it is often in darkness that God uses those who are faithful uh, to shine light. Some of you will remember back in 2006 um, in in a a school in Pennsylvania, a shooter came in uh, and killed children. One of these awful atrocious uh, events. Uh, An event of utter darkness. And God appointed that community at that time to to remain consistent. You know, the Amish talk a lot about peace. They talk about it all the time. Now in this moment, what does it look like to respond as a people of peace in the face of such awful violence and hostility? And global news was on that one tiny town in Pennsylvania because God appointed that, those quirky people to show something of their difference to the whole world. And it may not have been what they wanted, but as they've been praying to have influence, uh, God used this evil to show that there are people who respond differently. And to that sense, we can say there's nothing good about that situation. Uh, but in, the, in our own darkness, we can, we can look to another place to say, boy, when darkness came to those people, they sought to be faithful so that when the news cameras were on them, they were different from everybody else. And they brought glory to God. And so what does it look like for each of us as we go into the world to take, to join with the brightness of all of the greatness in New York and bring out the fullness of the flavor? What does it look like to keep going in a world where there is so much terrible discouragement? Well, we're called to reveal God and the distinctiveness is not us, our habits, our patterns. It's the light of Christ in us. And so I wanna encourage you, keep looking to him so that his goodness, His glory, His mercy is shining into your life so that you're being strengthened, protected. But don't don't stay on the mountaintop in the presence of God. Come down, get a job, serve your neighbors, engage somebody that you don't know, but do it distinctly with the mind of Christ, with the, the glory of His goodness. It's not always going to be easy, but at the end, you'll find that it is meaningful. It is satisfying, it's what God calls us to. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, maybe it's easy each week for us to, to sit and think about these things, but it is so hard to do, and, and we're here admitting that, that this week we failed, that we're still confused about all sorts of things. And so, Lord, help us as we look to you as we're assembled today to see your glory and your grace, to, to know your truth and your mercy, so that it shines brightly into our lives and restores, heals us, energizes us. Lord, give us that strength, that energy through the reading of your word, through the participation of your sacraments, through our seeking you in prayer, through this fellowship. But Lord, let us go forth from this place to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that the light that we are seeking for ourselves would shine in us as we go back into the world. So help us to be people of truth, people of compassion, people of radical love, people of generosity. Help us to be like Jesus Christ. Uh, Watch over us, we pray in his name. Amen.